This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. When my husband died, that I felt that loss spiritually as well. That's hard to articulate. It was fearful. It was frightening. Um, it was like, is that the Lord leaving me as well? I haven't done one of these in a long time. Oh, I thought, yeah, I thought you were going to disinvite me. I'm glad you let me come. Oh, we started. <laughs> no, I. You're like on right now, and I was just like getting ready to No, be no, on. but that was also sincere. I mean, it's both. No, but we just talked about it. We were just talking about all sorts of things you're doing for us. Yeah, but I thought you didn't want co hosts anymore. So I want a co host. Good. Uh, um, you, uh, Kate Shellnut, our Southern correspondent, welcome back. Thank you. Happy 2017. Thank you. Happy 2017 thing to you. 2017 number two, February. Yes. So um, you are the person who interviews people in the South, um, and you have interviewed someone in the South named Gay Clark. Tell us about Gay. So um, when I started looking around in my community for people who I thought would be really interesting, uh, like movers and shakers within the church... Several people separately recommended Gay Clark to me. She um, is a cardiac nurse. She is involved with her church, uh, Presbyterian Church in Augusta, Georgia. She also helps with kind of domestic violence and some anti-trafficking efforts. And then she's came to writing late in life. So I really mm-hmm. like, I'm really down with sitting down with like women with from an older generation and she's also a widow. So she has all these kind of like life experiences and wisdom that sometimes I'm like, gosh, why do I keep listening to my friends so much? And why don't I just talk to older ladies all the time? Cause they seem to know so much more. I guess that's the good thing about the church, right? Like the, the body of Christ, right? That we're all getting to learn from each other. And it's that, that's one of the great things about the calling is that um, we get to hear from people who have been, at it long enough that they feel like they can look back and, and have some lessons. So we had a great time talking about, it's, what do they call it when it's not your job to be in ministry? Like vocation. We talked about what, it, yeah, what it means, the kind of tension that she has between serving the church, but also just having a job. Yeah. So I think people out there who, who have a job outside of the church, but still see their primary calling as to do something that I think anyone like that is going to love. Yes. So I, uh, I wanted to mention before you go into the interview, what was, I don't know, what was the most striking thing she talked about in the interview? I liked the story of how, um, she became a writer later in her life. Um, that she got to, she always had this calling and it wasn't until she was in her fifties that she finally pursued it. And so it was a nice also lesson for like what God has in store for us different seasons yeah. and that there are some reasons that we like different things. So whether that's writing or something else, uh, who knows what could come later. And like, it sounds so cheesy, but like, don't give up on your dreams. Yeah, definitely don't. <laughs> if your dream is to subscribe to CT, have I got a deal for you. <laughs> um, we have a special deal for CT 
podcast listeners, if you go to uh, orderct.com slash the calling, we actually have a discounted subscription price for you and you get a special download that was specially crafted and created by your podcast hosts, including me and the other quick to listen hosts. It's really neat. You want to get on it. It's popular and you are going to be left out to state the bandwagon theory clearly and succinctly. If you don't do it, you're not cool. Okay. So here's the interview with Gay Clark. Kate, thanks for being the Calling Southern Correspondent. What does a Saturday look like for Gay Clark? Well, um, my free time is pretty much potpourri. So um, I might be out in my yard weeding. I might be catching up on housework. I might be brainstorming an article. Um, or just being out with friends visiting. There's no one Saturday that's the same. There's not anything to my life that's a routine. So I'm going to take a minute to introduce you. I'm at the home of Gay Clark. She mentioned her garden. I'm looking outside at her backyard, her beautiful fence and trees. We're here in Augusta, Georgia, and she is a cardiac nurse, a journalist, um, a volunteer against uh, with an anti-trafficking organization locally, does a lot of stuff in her life and ministry. So we're going to be sitting down and chatting about all of those things. And the first question is, how would you describe your calling? I would describe it as a jack of all trades and master of none. I am all the things you mentioned. I'm a writer. I'm a mother. I'm a uh, was a wife and now a widow. I've had several jobs at the same time. When I was leading a major ministry at church, I was also working full time. I never seem to settle on one thing which makes the whole idea of calling very interesting because when I think of calling or traditionally historically, you think of the one thing that somebody does for a lifetime that God gifts them with, that they love doing. And I don't know that that's been my experience. My experience is I've done many things. Some of them I've loved doing, like being a wife and mother. Some of them I grieve through, like being a widow. But nonetheless, they were all things that I felt like God was calling me to. Were you ever tempted to go after a singular calling or frustrated that um, you did feel your life pulled to all these different things rather than saying, gosh, I wish there was just a one thing that I could focus in on? Absolutely. In fact, uh, there were times I was counseled that I needed more focus in my life. And therefore, what they meant was find the one thing, stop doing the many things. And there's things that were desirable about the one thing versus the many. It seemed more straightforward. It seemed less hectic. It seemed easier. But God, in, in certain seasons of my life, gave me the one thing. And I realized it had its trials and tribulations and challenges as well. So I realized that the issue really wasn't whether I was doing one thing or many. The issue was, am I content where God has me right now? And let's talk about one area that takes a lot of your time, which is your day job, the the um, work that you do in, in a hospital as a cardiac nurse. So what led you to that as a career, as a part of your vocation? Well, um, I was very pragmatic about it. Back in the day, if you will, 35 years ago when I was considering a career, nurses didn't work 12-hour shifts. And of course, I was a 18-year-old naive something 
And um, I started out with a political science major because I had no idea what I wanted to do. And then the summer of my freshman year, I got through with that first year of school. And I remember meeting a lot of bag boys who had degrees in political science. And that's where they were. Not a good sign. Yeah, (laughs) I thought, wow, I need to rethink this. Um, So I began examining jobs and trying to trying to figure out how they would fit into my other goals I wanted to be a wife and mother. Nursing, uh, I was attracted to more of a pragmatic way. It was seven to three. And I remember sitting down as I'm thinking through things. It wasn't like, oh, I need to heal people. It was more of, wow, that's seven to three. I could totally drop the kids off of school, go to the hospital and work, swing back around and pick them up and work full-time and be a full-time mother and and give both my 100%. And at this, all of my nurse friends are laughing hysterically because that is not how it works. Seven to three. I don't even know that that's a a shift most jobs have. Back in the day, there was a seven to three shift, but even then, no nurse gets there right at seven, and she's certainly not going to leave right at, at three. So that was just my naivete about approaching things. You talked a little bit about the idea that this wasn't necessarily a God calling, but more of a practical calling at the time. Where was your faith at the time as you were in college? Like a lot of kids who go to college, I was challenged by the things that I'd been taught all my life. Um, there were uh, I encountered a lot of people who questioned the authority of Scripture who questioned whether there was a God or whether if that God existed, if he was good. There were all of these very difficult, challenging questions um, that I was faced with that I wasn't really prepared that there were other people with these crazy points of view, unquote. And uh, so I, I knew I wanted to, quote, do something really great for God. I think I had that passion, and I think I knew I could write. I had gotten complimented on that often, but um, I wasn't sure I had the 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 um, confidence level to, to go into writing. So I sort of shied away from journalism and some other thoughts. And um, nursing seemed safe. It seemed methodical. It seemed like, okay, you can get a job with that. I can earn a living. Worst comes to worst, I won't be starving. So um, it really wasn't, again, I felt like a call from God. And yet, looking back, I can see God was directing me and moving me in that direction. How does it feel different or look different to you now that you've been in the career field so much longer? How do you see it from a faith lens um, now that you've got the the benefit of time and wisdom? Um, I would say that, um, you know, with the emphasis that we are hearing in the Christian community on calling, um, there's a lot of encouragement for folks to find out what their gifts are and pursue those, develop them, hone their craft, whatever their craft may be, and translate that into a calling for God's glory. And looking back, for me, I realized that calling is also caught up, not that any of those things aren't part of calling, but it's also caught up in your circumstances and um, your seasons of life that are ordained by God. Um, And when you pull all that together, calling for me is less about what I'm specifically doing at the time and far more about who God created and wired me to be and why he wants me at a certain place and time in a moment. You know, we all have times in our lives where we question our calling and we think we made a big mistake. At least I I think most of us do. We wake up and say, why did I want to be a teacher? Why did I want to be a nurse? And 
one of those moments for me was when I was sitting at my desk writing an article that I was really excited about, but I was on call at the hospital. And what that means is any minute that phone could ring and I'd have to stop what I'm doing and go to the hospital. I was struggling with whether I was a great nurse or even a decent nurse. I was having nightmares at night that maybe I would make a mistake and kill somebody. Every nurse has that fear at some point or another. So I was really in a very fragile period of my nursing career. And I'm writing and thinking, this is what I need to do. I just need to write more and nurse less. And then the phone rings. And it's the hospital saying, you need to you know, come in, which means I have to stop what I'm doing and come in. And it, it seemed to smack me in the face. This is your reality, Gay. You're going to be a nurse, and you're going to be a nurse for a long time. And I cried all the way to work, you know, very angry at God, very angry at myself, uh, very angry at the situation. When I got to work, the first um, patient I took care of that I walked in the room, I recognized her from a couple of weeks before. She was a bilateral amputee. She had her, the rest of her body was ravaged by cancer. And I would have never met her, but she also wound up in end-stage congestive heart failure. So she wound up on my unit needing some procedures. And the first time I met her, I'll never forget her because when I walked in the room, despite all of that, you were just overcome with a sense of God's presence. And people who know me know I'm not a heebie-jeebie, feely kind of girl. So I came in and I was like, well, the Lord is in here. And so we just instantly started talking about the Lord very comfortably. So when I came back in this second time, angry that God had called me to work, and I took her hand and and said, how are you doing? Don't know if you remember me. And um, the tears just started streaming down her face. And she said, I've been laying here for two hours begging God to send you. So within a couple of hours, I went from hate being a nurse to Lord, thank you. <laughs> I'm a nurse. And most people, I think, um, in their professions, particularly our helping professions, we have those roller coaster moments. And so now I think looking back, when I'm in that valley, when I'm in that I don't want to be here moment, which is, first of all, know that it's going to happen even if you love your job. But second of all, know it's not forever, but it will probably last longer than you want to. But the beautiful thing is God is doing something in that you cannot see. I, when I was being called to work, he had the perspective of the big picture. And that's a word picture for what our whole life can be like that there are times there, I think there'll be things in heaven where we roll the tape and then we'll go, remember there when you think that was the end of the world? You see what I was doing there? You see, do you see now what I was doing there? Part of what makes heaven heaven is that God's there, but part of what makes heaven for me will be the perspective that we'll be able to have. One of my friends here in Augusta, who's also the co-leader of our small group, is actually also a cardiac nurse. And so I've seen in her life how it's both... Um, a blessing and a struggle or a tension, just the hours mm -hmm. that on mm -hmm. the days that she, mm -hmm. she works that 12 hour shift, even though technically if, if she, you know, got to teleport from the minute that she was off, you know, home, she would be there in time. But most of the time it's another hour or hour and a half sure. before she makes it home. Sure. But then she has these days off, you know, in midweek where she gets to visit and socialize and do right. stuff. So it's, it, it goes between, you know, catching someone at the end of what has to be a really hard day to having time to sit down with them. So I know it has an effect and, and you felt this on, uh -huh. um, both your church involvement and how you, uh, socialize and fellowship with other people. Yes. A lot of folks in their, in their jobs, they're able to say, 
hey, you know what? I'm going to sign up for that Tuesday night Bible study at seven o'clock every Tuesday night. And I'm going to be part of that because Bible study is important. Fellowship's important. And, and they get to check a lot of their boxes off that way in this very structured way. Um, but nurses with the 12 hour shifts, um, they, they, I guess what you call bleed into the evening and every week's different. You know, if you don't like your schedule this week, don't worry next week, it'll change. Um, so I can't commit to the same thing every week. And that removes me from a lot of opportunity at church. And it's very frustrating. I don't know what the answer is. Um, at, at times I've talked with some church friends. Um, we have a lot of medical people in our, in our church and they can relate. Um, but what it has done for me is it's led me into an arena of, of maybe thinking outside the box as far as traditional Bible study and ministry. And what that looks like for me now is very different than, than what, it does, what it did when I wasn't working full time. And there's an article that you wrote um, for the Gospel Coalition for TGC that hinted at this, and I'm going to read a quote from it and have you talk a little more about um, what you meant by this and the tensions that you've had to explore. And so you were talking about how you were at a Sunday school class that was discussing calling, and you said nearly everyone in this room, from doctors and lawyers to the lady who cleans houses for a living, knows their work matters to God. What I really want to know is, does my work matter to the church? Um, well, I think now, again, that the whole concept of calling is, is, has filtered into churches and churches are now doing seminars on calling. Um, and they're wanting, they're wanting their members to understand their calling, their gifts, and they're wanting to encourage them in their workplace. Uh, what has been harder for a lot of churches to, um, adjust to is understanding, um, the people that they're reaching out to that are at work. Um, simple things like um, if I get uh, a, a postcard in the mail for a woman's event this Saturday, it's frustrating to me because um, they may have been planning it for months, but my schedule is already made out. And so I can't plan on it because I've gotten somewhat of a late notice. So little simple things to that, or perhaps there's a big ministry that they're, un, 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 that they're unveiling at church and they want volunteers. And that's great, um, but a lot of people who are working 10, 12-hour days, they don't have anything left over at the end of the day. And it's not because they're uninterested or they don't care, although that's been hinted at. In some churches, in some situations, it's because they're exhausted and they don't have anything left over. What... I thought was rather than uh, churches looking at, okay, what can we do? What new ministries do we need to launch? Is look at your people and see where are they already working and where are they already invested? And you go to them and say, Gay Clark, what can we do to encourage the nurses at University Hospital? Teachers, what do we need to do to encourage our students? And we are doing some of that in our church, you know, with the after-school programs and such. But typically I've seen ministry as something you do in addition to your job, and that can be burdensome, stressful, overwhelming, exhausting. Um, You know, back in the day, a lot of ladies uh, stayed home, and they were able to give themselves freely to that. But as more and more women have to enter the workplace, that becomes more and more challenging. Um, related to that is the whole idea of training. Um, I wrote um, an article a while back. Um, I am constantly being invited to training classes, seminars, um, learn how to, to be trained, you know, even to, to work with sex trafficking victims. I had to go to training. Um, 
and as a nurse, I'm, I'm recertified in training areas all the time. But in ministry at times, I have wearied of attending training classes where I had to take off work and I had to pay my fee and I get the training. The big question I have to those doing the training is to what? Hmm. It's a lot like um, when I went and got a de- or on my way to getting a degree in political science. That changed when I asked myself, why am I in school? What is my goal? So training should look like, what is your end goal? Not just, this is a really great seminar and you need to take time off from work and, and go, but it's going to equip you in your job or in your ministry or in your calling in this concrete, specific way. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, where do you go to church and how has your involvement in church changed over the years? You mentioned at the start that you used to lead a major ministry I go to church at First Presbyterian Church in Augusta, Georgia. It's a downtown church, and it has changed over the years, basically sometimes modeling my seasons of life. Um, I was just with a young family in our church last night. Um, They had three kids under three. (laughs) So in that crunch time, and, and the wife was expressing how she feels bad that she can't be more of a contributor at church. And I said, you are being a contributor at church, raising these kids, pouring yourself into them right now. And it won't look and feel like this forever. It will change and web and, and, and wax and wane with your opportunity. And um, years ago, we had ministry teams at, at, at First Prez, which may, basically the concept was if you had a passion for a particular ministry, find other people that agree with you and form a team. And I had, our church was big, and I had this passion that communication was poor at the time. It's better now. Um, so I had this passion to connect people in need with those who had the resources. Um, sometimes that might look like a, a woman who's abandoned by her husband and had financial needs, but she's not going to approach a male deacon. Hmm. So she kind of needed a female to kind of come alongside her and be her advocate. Um, we called ourselves the Compassion Ministry Team. We did some things inside the church, but we eventually went outside the church and reached out to others as well. Uh, we had um, a woman that was dying of cancer and she was estranged from her family. And um, one of our church members met her, but she was kind of overwhelmed with the need. So she came to me and we started signing up people to come in and help her with activities of daily living that she couldn't afford. And along that way, we led her to Christ. Uh, along that way, we helped her reconcile with her family. And so before she died, um, she had really reconciled with ultimately with the Lord and her family. It was a beautiful picture of the gospel kind of being unveiled right in front of us. When my husband was alive, he was an elder, and uh, he felt very called to being involved in people's lives um, in our parish. That's how we break the, a big church into smaller size. And so we helped folks who were struggling their marriage. Um, we both felt very passionate about helping single women. So, and that was mainly needed to be me for obvious reasons. Um, so we had that ministry. Um, now that um, he is with the Lord, I have this nice, wonderful, empty home. And, and often um, that home is used to welcome people who need a place to stay for an extended. So I have a gift of hospitality that I'm using now that I you know, didn't. Didn't have the freedom when I had a full family here to take care of. Now I have pretty much a, uh, a home that's available for the Lord at any time. 
And you've written about both kind of the struggle and then the power of worshiping and returning to church mm-hmm. after your husband's death. Tell me more about that and, and what role First Pres has played for you. I used to joke um, a little bit because I think one of the first articles I wrote that kind of created that tension that happens when you have a loss as profound as your husband or a child. Um, I, I wrote an article when the, reading the Bible through just wouldn't do. <laughs> and um, it was when grief can overwhelm you, it can exhaust you, it can impact the way you think clearly. And while the local church can come alongside you and bring you a casserole and comfort you and send you a card and pray with you, there's a there's always that immediate triage that happens right when someone passes away. But there comes a point where people have to get on with their lives um, and they can't put that much that same level of energy. And there comes a point where you as a widow have to trust on the Lord primarily for your strength and your your reinforcement. Um, and so I was struggling with my quiet time. And one of the things that um, I don't think I recognized fully what was happening at the time, but really felt emotionally like when when my husband died that I felt that loss spiritually as well. That's hard to articulate. It was fearful. It was frightening. Um, it was like, is that the Lord leaving me as well? And, and the quiet times were difficult because I couldn't concentrate and that sort of thing. And and I was trying to get through the daily reading so that at the end of the year I had read the entire Bible and that wasn't happening. Um, so I began to use the bulletin. Um, and I, as I began to use the bulletin, I began to realize how much thought and effort and energy is put into our church service. And what it was doing was it was not only transforming my devotional for a season, it was transforming the way I came to church. And yes, I, I wrote when you don't want to go to church, um, mainly to let people know how difficult it is for a grieving widow to walk back through those doors. And dare I say it, how difficult it is for a new divorcee to walk through those doors. How difficult it is for a woman whose son is addicted to alcohol to walk through those doors. Satan's goal is to keep us from being at the foot of the cross in worship in any way he can. And the same suffering that can drive us to Christ and reinforce us he's going to try to use um, for ill. I think my perspective is I recognize that's a battle. Um, And it's um, just because something is difficult to do and painful to do doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. And one of the things I hope that article did was for folks who've not been there, give them appreciation for some of the folks that are sitting in their pews and where they're, what they're going, what that means, but also to the person. I mean, I've been on both sides of this. I've been the person trying to coach the hurting person to church who says, I just can't. I just can't go back to that church. And now I've been that person. I know what that feels like in my veins. I know what that feels like. Um, the answer is still go. But I think um, if folks can feel that you hear them, feel them, understand, that will help. And we keep hinting at this other aspect of your life, mm-hmm. which is your writing uh-huh. and something that you had the blessing of coming into a calling, returning to an early calling, mm-hmm. even though you've gotten older. What did it look like for you to return to writing and finally dedicate um, some time and energy to carving out a part of your life to be a writer and journalist? I started in writing because when I was young, um, I didn't like confrontation. 
So when I wanted to tell my mother something difficult or my dad, I'd write him a note. Um, I'd get feelings out on paper and um, that seemed easier. Um, I remember my mom still has it. She laughs. I wrote a a note about her biscuits being really more like hockey pucks and hmm. really felt like at, at seven Away years. with words very yeah, early. <laughs> word pictures just came instantly. I really at the time thought that was a burning problem, so I, I, I would write it now. So I got, um, but I buried that as, as we talked about with insecurity and doubt and question. And um, when we moved to Idaho for a brief period of time, um, I wasn't going to work for a lot of reasons. And so I needed something to do with my time. And my husband was coming up with all kinds of really bad ideas um, <laughs> for what I could do with my time. Um, kids would be in school. Um, none of them involved employment, thankfully, but they, they just weren't things that I, I was pretty clear I didn't want to do them. And finally, he looks at me and says, you got something on your mind. And I was like, I really wanted to, wanted to write. So I started writing and uh, took an cl- online class, um, still Um, prodded along because life was uh, getting in the way of writing. But I think one of the things God showed me in that delay is that life is writing and writing is life. Um, I tell a lot of people who now ask me, you know, how can I write quote like you do? And I'm humbled by that question, but um, I always say you can't give what you don't have. And um, life went out and punched me in the gut. And then I had to look through the scriptures and that's what comes out on paper at times. And, you know, just like Elizabeth Elliot, she writes some poignant, beautiful things, but she's buried a couple of husbands. So I I think life is writing for her and, and writing is life. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. As a fellow writer, one of the things that I like about it is, one, a sense of completion, just like people who clean like a task that you could see, oh, this was dirty and now it's clean. I can see the progress. I like the idea of there's something I've been grappling with or thinking about that I can put into words and there's a start and a beginning and I've got a snapshot of it. And I've been able to do that as a military wife, Uh that here's one area of ministry or Uh an aspect of the gospel that I've been able to shine on. So I can relate to, to that impulse in you that, okay, here's this thing that I've learned and thought about. And now I can kind of just put it in front of me and in front of other people and see them either relate to it and say, oh, I feel that too. Or on the other side, you have people who say, I never thought of it that way. Right. And one of the things that you've written about out of your life and expertise is sex trafficking. Uh-huh. So tell me about how that became an issue that, that even caught your attention. Um, well, I have been called by a, a few, and they are very dear friends at church, a champion of lost causes. Hmm. And um, what they mean by that is broken women seem to find their way to me and I to them. There's something about their brokenness I totally identify with. And I think in that identity, they respond and turn to me. Um, so statistically, um, I can't tell you how many trafficking victims are out there. Um, that's the one article I get frustrated when people, people always want me to write an article about how much and how many and how, how 
We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. But we do know this, that on the very most conservative estimates, they're probably sitting in your pews. They're probably in your youth group. And for me, it was inevitable that as I helped some broken women that I would encounter folks with trafficking. That sent me to looking for people who work with victims. And in Augusta, um, the lead group that is working with actual victims and actually um, helping them reach restorative services, but also trying with a passion for the gospel is a group called I Care. So I very quickly reached out to them, pursued them, um, attended training classes, tried to build a relationship with um, So that's just reinforced that. Um, I've worked with some traffic victims through them, um, and that's been an encouragement. Somewhere in that process, um, I, I applied to World Magazine for their career course, um, was accepted, went to Marvin Olasky's house. Marvin said to me, well, we don't really have someone right now really focused on the trafficking issue for the web. Would you be interested in it? So that's really how I began writing on trafficking. Um, and some some different uh, trends have come up that I've seen, like the issue of Backpage um, was huge and it made me really angry. But you can't write an angry news story. You're supposed to write an objective news story. You can present material and information and facts that might make your reader angry, but you can't write the editorial in a news story. And a term like sex trafficking, I think, can either mean nothing to people, that it's so broad that it's just this catchphrase that we talk about, especially Uh in the church, as more attention has been given to it, Mm -hmm. or it could mean something really specific. Can you talk about um, when you you say that you're working with women who are trafficked, what Mm -hmm. kind of scenarios you see in our local community that are being um, played out that these women have have gone through? Mostly, uh, the vast majority of women that we've worked with in the year of trafficking have been young. They have been anywhere from 9, 10 years old, right on up to early 20s. But they are women who have been coerced and forced and threatened into selling their bodies, um, most often 15, 20 times a night, to 15 to 20 different customers um, and turning that money over to somebody who's basically in charge of their life. And um, you say, how in the world does that happen? How in the world does that happen? Um, We have to go downstream. We have uh, a world now that is polluted with pornography and that pornography has, has aggravated an already high demand for paid for sex, if you will. Um, So you've got this high demand, there's money to be made, um, and um, then you have, coupled with that, and the brokenness of our society, one, statistically, one out of every four women has been sexually molested, abused before they reached adulthood. So, and that's inside your church as well. A lot of people, well, you know, that's out there. No, it's inside your church as well. Well, those young kids, a lot of those young women flee their homes. They're fleeing sexual abuse. And predators know where to find them. They find them at bus stations. They find them at train stations. They find them out on the street. They're hungry. They're looking for food. They're looking for shelter. And somebody comes along and says, I'll take care of you. Um, And then that translates into a very coercive environment. Other folks we've um, encountered were pursued right out of school. Uh, 18-year-old starts to target a 12-year-old. You're pretty. I bought you something for you. Here's an iPhone, iPad. 
Let's have a secret romance just between you and me. And she gets sucked into something that she can't control. Um, and those, I mean, it's maddening to think about, but that happens. And they target one of the particular reasons why I got pulled into it when I was not sure I wanted to was that a lot of women that are targeted are from the church because you can take a 12 or 13 year old's very young, struggling conscience. You know, she's her frontal lobe is not fully formed. She's not the best at making decisions. She's being taught the thou shalt nots at church. And a predator can use that against her to say, now that you've done these things, your mom and daddy don't want you back. Um, so those are the kinds of women we we find ourselves involved in. They're, um, a lot of them are women that um, if they're runaways, they're not going to be missed. And for people who, I mean, I'm going to say everybody, that mm-hmm. that turns your stomach, that mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. makes you ache, what is your advice for how Christians can and should be responding to this? Well, I'd say, first of all, pray. I mean, I'd say for well over a year, I didn't know what to do. I just had nightmares. I the little bit I knew, just I wish I didn't know, but I did know. So I prayed through it and like, well, what do you want to do with this? And um, almost like arguing with him about it. And um, and then for a while, I would go to places where I knew um, trafficking occurred. Um, downtown, there's a little strip of, of strip clubs. And <laughs> one girl that I actually worked with and encountered, I met there because I would go down there, park the car and pray. I could park the car. I could stay here at my house and pray, yes. But there was something about going down there, parking the car in that environment and praying right there that just helped me. So I did, and I encountered a girl that I talked with, developed a relationship that way. Um, that wasn't my goal. My goal was just to simply pray. So it um, escalated into a next step. The second thing I would tell people to do is learn as much as they can, read as much as they can on the subject. Um you, you do some Googling and talking with folks and you will find that there are some good organizations out there that offer training, information, and help. Um, so that's that. And the other thing is, you know, you don't have to be this gutsy, edgy person that would snatch a little girl from a pimp. That's what some people think I do, and that's not true. Um, you can just be a foster parent is fighting sex trafficking because... As I said, a lot of these women are running from their abusive homes to somewhere safe. What if the church got more aggressive about foster care and more and more families said, yes, we'll take one, we'll take two, we'll take three? What would happen? What would that do um, for this situation? You know, the demand would be up, yes, but some of these women, children, sometimes there's boys as well, they wouldn't be as readily available because there'd be a safe place for them to go. So um, there's other things you can do in the line of track. Some people go and, um, and they just create awareness. Um, I have a passion that every church should be talking to their middle schoolers and their high schoolers about some basics of tra- sex trafficking. They need to do it with mom and dad around. I'm not trying to be secretive in that way. Um, but they need to be alert and aware. Um, I did a sex trafficking talk to a group and afterwards, a little 12-year-old girl came up to me and said, I think my friend's being pursued by somebody bad. And um, she was able to, she said, I hadn't said anything because I didn't think anybody believed me. I knew something was wrong. I couldn't verbalize it. I couldn't figure out what it was other than he was 18. Um, and she turned out to be absolutely right. And some things got 
uh, addressed before it became a statistic. Just think if we could arm our kids with information, um, it could be used in a positive way. Kind of on a different note, but just speaking about you as a mother talking to your own children, what kind of advice have you given them or direction around the area of calling? What has it been like to see them as young adults now um, at that precipice where it is the, well, what am I going to do? What what in my early life have I have I felt um, God gift me with? Um, and just the, the joy and then challenge of working with them on that. Well, I have two, as a lot of mothers and dads can relate, I have two very different kids. Um, they were raised in the same home, but they are just wired differently, but they had two very different parents. I was, I'm what you call indoorsy. (laughs) (laughs) Camping is not my idea of fun. Um, and, um, but I'm also, um, I guess what you would call a type B minus relaxed free spirit. My husband was a color within the lines type triple quadruple A. That's the rule. You don't break it. For me, rules were suggested. We're two different types of people. I'm always encouraged when people say that because my husband and I are very different. So it's always good to hear like, okay, I can be the... It made a fun marriage because I could lean in his strength when I needed more rules and restrictions. And he knew, he at least began to acknowledge, okay, there's areas called gray and, you know, I can be spontaneous. And, you know, I think he, he would have had an ulcer long before, you know, if if we, he hadn't married me, but, um, what that translated with our kids is they're learning and, and calling, particularly like, you know, my husband, he, he did the traditional calling thing. He, he knew probably from birth that he, he was an engineer and, um, went to engineering school, um, and graduated and, um, every aspect of his life reflects that analytical, methodical, detail. I used to call him my details man. Um, he's a detail fella. And my daughter followed in his footsteps. When she told me she wanted to be a teacher, I was like, oh. And then all of a sudden my mind flooded with scenes of her gathering her little stuffed animals and talking to them and, and other things that she would um, do. And I thought she's been a teacher all her life. How did I not see that? So she had a calling early that she was clear about that she got reinforced. She had her doubts at times, but she got reinforced with. Um, so, um, so she's had a, my guess is I will anticipate that she'll probably always be involved in teaching in some way. Um, my son has been struggling with figuring out what is God calling me to do? Um, he went to, he graduated recently with a degree in biology. He, he thought the biology degree and he's right, would give him some options. Um, and so now he's pursuing all sorts of avenues. Um, I know one of the pieces of advice one of his professors um, gave him, which I think is good advice, is, you know, send out a lot of resumes, reach out to a lot of people, and see what sticks. And um, that's kind of where he's been for a a bit um, as he's pursued things. Um, And one of the things that's helped him with his sense of calling has been his involvement at church. He uh, got involved with ESL, English as a Second Language, Uh, loved it. And, uh, I think they loved him and I, I, he realized, wow, I'm really fascinated with immigrants and I'm fascinated with other countries. And he saw, he won all kinds of geography bees when he was younger and, um, realized he's starting to see a trend here that could translate into a job, but he's in that active process of asking, inviting, see what sticks, opening doors. It's a very nerve wracking period for him. Um, but I think he'll eventually land on his feet. 
And thinking of the age your kids are now and back to when you were younger, uh-huh. what advice would you have for young gay Clark or gay Clark to be? I laugh at that question. I've, I've been asked that question in a couple of times because young gay Clark did not like advice. <laughs> she hated advice. I like to already know how to do things. You know, even my mother, bless her heart, when she was trying to teach me to sew, that must have been a cross to bear because I wanted to just do it. Um, so before I would venture to, um, give her advice, I think knowing her better than I know anyone, but there's this verse in verses in Ephesians that I pray for a lot of women. I prayed really difficultly at times for different women in crisis and for my own daughter. This is Paul in Ephesians and he's speaking to folks and he's, being he's under persecution but he says for this reason i bow my knees before the father he goes on what is he going to pray that christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth what is the length what is the height what is the depth and to know the love of christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of god if we can get a hold of the depth, height, width, breadth of God's love in Technicolor, we're not going to need any advice, really. Um, and think about it, it says, which surpasses knowledge. It's bigger than advice. And, and what's the end result? To what end, as I pressed on, that you may be filled with the fullness of God? How cool is that? So I, you know, I would pray that for young gay Clark that she would get, because I think often on throughout her life, yes, she wanted to know how to do things, but she was so riddled as she is now at 50 with insecurities and unsureness. And even now I battle, do you love me? Do you care for me on all kinds of different levels? And if we can be rooted and grounded in God's love, then we can love people who don't love us and we can love them well. We can love people who who do love us and love them well. It will inform our sense of calling. It will comfort us in the dark times. Um, There are days I get up, as I've shared, I struggle with being a nurse. I don't feel like super nurse. Um, You know, I I was embarrassed when they asked me to do a commercial for the the hospital because, like, really, really, there's so many other more sophisticated nurses. And as I'm seeing my superiors are now younger than me and they're sharper than me and they're better than me and um i start playing that what could have been should have been in comparison game that i lose um i get depressed and then i look i get up in the morning and i think lord i just can't do this one more day and i look and there's a verse i plastered on the wall so it would be the first thing i see every morning and it says my grace is sufficient for you For my power is perfected in what? In my calling? No. In my giftedness? No. In my stepping out on faith? In my weakness. In my weakness. So what, I'm sitting there with tears, overwhelmed, feeling all this doubt, and the Lord is saying to me, are you willing to walk in weakness so that I can show you what it feels like to encompass my grace fully. You know, the other thing that scares me about ministry and calling the most is we can do it in our own strength. I do have gifts. 
you know, I am talented and I can pull all those things together and use them in a ministry, see a, a harvest, if you will, whatever that looks like for the particular ministry, get those pats on the back, just everyone's amen in it and be very, very far away from God at the same time. And that success can inoculate me against the gospel of Jesus Christ and my own continued need for his salvation in my life. And when I fail in ministry, that drives me to Christ, and I'm grateful for that failure. But that's the, you know, in the, in the sense of calling, one of the things I have to remind myself again and again and again is, um, yes, there should be an emphasis on, on honing your craft, whether it be writing or nursing. And, and knowing your gifts and getting a sense of who you are. But there should be a higher priority in knowing God himself. And I hope that that balance is always maintained in the proper proportion. Thank you for listening to The Calling. If you want to know more about Gay Clark, you can follow her on Twitter at Clark Gay, uh, C-L-A-R-K-G-A-Y-E. And check out her writing in TGC and some other places in World Magazine as well. And thank you for subscribing. You can rate us and review us on iTunes. The Calling is hosted by Richard Clark. It's produced by Jonathan Clausen. Theme music by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons license for Pringo. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.